Hey Reality, welcome once again to the teaching for this week. My name is John and I'm very grateful that you're spending some time with me today. We're continuing on in our series called What is the Church? And in this last section, we're looking at a, a characteristic of the church that we are a witnessing community. We witness to the story of God and the good news of Jesus. So last week, we started out with some vision uh, of what the mission of God is. And we saw that the mission of God is part of the character of who God is, that he is this triune God, this three-in-one that is has this ever-expanding love for the world that he wants to grow. So the mission is not our mission. We are not uh, going on mission and asking God to come join us, but it is God's mission. It's his very character, and we as his people have the privilege of participating with him in his mission. So today we're going to look at a different passage, Acts 17, that illustrates two things about how we partner with God in his mission. How we partner with him in our emotions and how we partner with him in engagement. So engagement and emotions. And I'm going to just read through the passage of Acts 17. Usually I read it at the beginning, but I'm going to just read through it as we go and comment on things, kind of let the passage unfold a little bit. So Acts 17, starting in verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So here we see Paul's emotions, and the, it's translated as deeply distressed. Or other places, uh, other versions, it's translated as being greatly upset or burning with anger. And the underlying Greek word here actually has the idea of, of Paul going into like a seizure or, you know, um, shaking with anger, we might say in English. So he's, he's just super frustrated. Now, what makes Paul so angry? Well, it says that the city is full of idols. Now, what are idols? It's a, a Christian word, a Bible word. And in, in the story that we've been unfolding here, it, the idols are things that are God's substitutes. We might say they're good things in our world that we make into God, whether that be our own desires or money or relationships or the environment. When we put those in the place of God, they become idols. They move from just being good things to God things. Now, why would we put something other than God at the center of our world? Well, there's a couple reasons. First is that idols in the Bible, they lie to us. So if you look at the first story in Genesis 3, there's a snake that's in the garden and, and it lies to Eve to tell her, like, you know, did God really say this? Is it really going to be the best for you to follow his plan? Or is there another one? And this is what idols do to us. They promise us something that they can never fulfill. They say, if you are going to have me, if you just have this relationship, if you just had this much money, if you just had uh, this kind of house, whatever those things are, this kind of status, this many followers on Instagram, then you would be truly fulfilled and happy. But the, the ironic part is what they promise they can never fulfill. So they lie to us. And because they lie to us, they promise something that they can never fulfill. They also hurt us. We become people who are fearful instead of what we were designed to be, people who are loving to reflect this shalom-giving God of the universe. We become anxious people rather than gracious. R rather than people who are open and free with this gracious relationship with this gracious God, we become anxious with our idols, holding on to them and clutching onto them. We become obsessed rather than free. And in doing so, we continue to hurt. No, the, the idols not only hurt us and change us into people that we were not designed to be, but we, we also uh, overflow that into hurting other people. And it, I often talk about this as an avalanche of sin. The, uh, the trope is hurt people hurt people. And so when idols hurt us, we end up hurting other people when we're let down. And finally, idols not only lie to us and hurt us, but they enslave us. 
We can't get out from within their grip. They promise us freedom, but actually we find ourselves enslaved. So this is what Paul sees in the world. That instead of people worshiping the God of the universe, what we were made to do is join in this God of mission and extend that shalom into the world through partnership with God and with each other. Uh, Paul's burning with anger because what he sees is people who have been lied to by other gods and, in, and they're hurt and they're hurting other people and they're enslaved. Now, here's a quick question for us for reflection. Is that how you feel? Is that how I feel when we walk around our city? You know, I think for many of us, when we look around, what we see more is people that we're jealous of, that we think maybe are doing really well. And might think, oh man, I wish I was doing as good as that person. Or you might say, it's actually unfair that I'm not. I work really hard, how come I can't be doing that well? Or I wish I had it all together like that person. And I know uh, since having kids, this is one thing I didn't realize, especially about being a mom. As dads generally were free of this type of pressure, but as moms, you feel all this pressure that this mom is, you know, really has it all together. She's doing all these different things and seems to be doing great with her kids. How come I'm not doing as well as them? Or I wish I was carefree as this other group of people in the world. So we look more at other people with jealousy and with desire rather than seeing them with spiritual eyes. And here's the reality. We don't witness like Paul and the early church did because we don't feel the same way that Paul and the early church did. And the reason is because we're not wrapped up in the story of the Bible like Paul and the early church were. We don't see the world in the same way. And so how does Paul encourage us to see our city and our world? As if it's a world full of worshipers. It's a world full of idols. Some, something is offering its hand out to every person and saying, worship me. If you only have me, if you only bow your knee to me, then you will be happy and fulfilled. And just like we saw David Foster Wallace say last week, remember, he is not a Christian. He says this, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. So we can choose to worship these idols, these things that will lie to us, that will hurt us and enslave us. And David Foster Wallace says, these things will ruin you. Or we can choose the God of the universe to take on his story. But the point here is that we see everybody as a worshiper. And this is a bit of a recap of last week, but it's also a reminder that if we want to be people who are on mission, we need to be people soaked in the story of God so that we see the world through the lens of God's story and then we become emotionally engaged in witness. For some of us, uh, witnessing and evangelism feels like, again, we're drumming up all this energy and excitement and emotion to try to get involved. But I think the way that it works in the Bible is actually we learn to just see the way that, that God works in the world, see the, see the story of God and see our world and our city as God does. And then the emotions will come and, and draw us into the story of God. So that's the emotions of Paul. Now I want us to emo uh, notice what the emotions of Paul lead him to. They don't lead him to withdraw. He's not like, you know what, I'm going to move to Chilliwack. This, this, uh, this city, Athens, is so full of idolatry, I can't be here. It also doesn't lead him to demonize the people of Athens, the city that he's in. He doesn't just take to Facebook and write some nasty rant about all these people. Instead, it moves him to engage with them. Now, what does engagement look like? There's two key words and an example that I want us to look at to understand how Paul engages and how we might be able to engage with people in our city. 
So verse 16, again, Paul was deeply distressed when he saw, that's the key word for us, saw that the city was full of idols. Now, a commentator I read pointed out that this word, there's lots of excellent words, sorry, that you could use for saw, to see something. The most common Greek word would be the word blepo, which means, you know, you just took a look. But the Greek word that's used here is theorontos, theorontos, or runtos, sorry, which is the Greek word that means to theorize or to get underneath something to look past the veneer of what's presented. And so that's what Paul does, is he looks underneath what's going on in Athens. Now, he may be sickened by Athens. He may think, oh man, I wish I could just get out of here and move to Chilliwack or whatever. And, and you may be sickened by what you see in Vancouver, and that may be your first impetus as well. But Paul looks underneath. He looks with spiritual eyes and he says, hey, what's the core of what's going on? If everyone is a worshiper, what's actually happening here? So verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews, with those who worship God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be here. Now this is our second important word to understand what Paul is doing. Verse 17, it says he reasoned. So Paul knew the story of God and he thought through the audiences that he was speaking to. And he reasoned with those audiences. Now, this doesn't just mean that he provided logical proofs for them of why Jesus raised, could be raised from the dead, um, although that could be part of it. What he's doing here is taking the truth of the gospel, the story of God and who Christ is, and he's explaining it in a way that is understandable to those who are listening. That's why I'm using the word engage. You can think of it like this, like two gears. So here's Paul and the story of God. And this is the gospel gear or this, yeah, the gospel gear. And then we've got his listeners over here, his audience. And in order for there to be a transfer from the gospel to the audience, these gears have to be engaged with one another. So Paul has to look beyond what these people are just doing into what they value, what they care about, what their stories are. And then he has to reason, he has to take the story of God and, and match it up so that these gears can move together, that there can be a transfer from the story of God and it can actually have some impact and effect in his listeners' lives. Now, before I move on, I wanna say two quick things here. There's bad news and good news. The bad news first. This means that sharing the gospel in our context is going to take some work. We don't uh, live 2,000 years ago walking into the city of Athens. And the world has even changed uh, in the last 50 years from a homogenous, mainly Caucasian context in the West, which is where a lot of our gospel presentations come from and the way that we think about sharing the gospel, to a diverse and many cultured context that we live in today. So it's going to take work for us to actually understand how we can get these gears to engage together, how we can share the beautiful story of our gracious God into the lives of our friends and our neighbors and the city. That's the bad news. It's going to take work. But the good news is this, I find at least for myself, that also means there's lots of hope. You know, I think many of us aren't actively witnessing. Like I said, the first reason might be because we're not emotionally engaged because we are, our emotions are drawn to other stories. We're not fully in the story of God. But I think another reason that sometimes we're not actively engaged in witnessing to people is because the way that we understand the gospel story to be told will, will never match the gears of the people, the lives of the people that we see on a day-to-day -day basis and rub shoulders with. They don't make sense in our social context and our world. But there's great hope. 
Because the Bible is showing us that Paul, just like Paul, he walked into this city with the gospel story for the first time and he saw and he reasoned and was able to share the gospel with people that had never heard it before. We have the same privilege today. There's an opportunity for us to, sh to share the explosive good news of who Jesus is in the lives of our friends and our family and our neighbors. So that's the really good news. Okay, so let's look at a couple quickly at a couple things that Paul did in sharing the good news with people and engaging the story of God and the good news of Jesus with his audiences. The first thing he did is he identifies two different groups of people that he's speaking to. Look again at, at verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So there's two distinct groups here, the Jews and those who worshiped God and those who happened to be there. Now, what's the main difference between these two groups? Well, Jews and God-fearers are people who are very familiar with the story of God as presented in the Bible. So they would know the Hebrew scriptures. They, would, they had a huge reverence for the God of the Bible, and they have a lot of biblical concepts that are in their gears, if that makes sense. So they would know things like sin. They would understand who Yahweh is from the Bible. They would have a desire for this coming Messiah who would make all things right. They would understand the story of Israel. That is a group of people, marginalized people, who were enslaved in Egypt. Then God rescued them out and they wandered through the desert and came into the promised land. And then there's this pattern of exile and coming back into the promised land. And they would understand things like the temple. They have all this furniture in their lives. All of these, I don't know what they're called, sprockets? I don't think that's the right things, but cogs on their gear that fit in with the story of the Bible. And so when groups of people like this, that have this uh, biblical mindset, when they're addressed in the book of Acts, the speaker will generally quote scripture in order to show them how the story of God and the good news of Jesus fit in together with their worldview and with their understanding of the world. Let me just give you one quick example from Acts 2. We looked at this passage already, so just a quick recap. The disciples, Jesus has left. They told them to wait. Jesus told them to wait for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, and it says they began to speak in different languages. Now I'm going to pick it up from there. It says there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. So here we see this. This is a biblically uh, literate group of people, the people who have the gear of the Bible ready to engage. And they were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? These guys are all speaking in this different language. But some sneered and said, hey, they're drunk on new wine. So how does Peter address them? Verse 14, Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and proclaimed to them, fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, you people who have this story of God, the, the Hebrew scriptures already in your mind and in your mindset. Let this be known to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. Now notice, nobody's like, Joel? Who's, who's Joel? You mean, you mean Tim's son, Joel? Nobody's saying that. Everybody knows right away who Joel is because they're steeped in the scriptures. So the words of the prophet Joel, and it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people and your sons and daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. And then Peter uh, quotes David a couple times and talks about how Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah that Joel talked about and the whole story of Israel leads up to. And what's the result? Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were pierced to the heart. 
And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? So for those who share the language of the Bible and they know the story of the Bible and they're living their lives in the hope of the Bible, Peter uses the Bible story to make sense of who Jesus is and, and how the work of the Holy Spirit is the promised fulfillment of this Messiah who has come. So it all makes sense for them. The gears match together. So here's something very practical for us to take home. If you have people in your lives who share the language of the Bible, who know the story of the Bible and are living their lives in the hope of the Bible, then the kind of presentation of the good news of Jesus is one that we see here in Acts, Acts 2. That can work. That makes sense. The gears engage with each other. And in general, in the West, we've been very successful at these kinds of presentations with the good news of Jesus. And the majority of people, I think, that still come to Christ today, become followers of Jesus, are generally those who are raised with some sort of Christian background. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. You know, all of us who are parents and any of us who serve uh, with Kids Church on Sunday, we are, all down, we are all teaching these stories of the Bible to our kids. That's one of the reasons why we do it, is because we're creating that gear for them to understand when they read the good news of Jesus, how these things fit together. It may not be their world. You know, they're not living in the time of Moses, but by understanding the story of Moses and this, this salvation that comes, this person who's called and brings the salvation of God creates a, a place for engagement with the story of Jesus as told in the Gospels, as we'll see when we look at the, the, the Gospel of Matthew in a few weeks. So you're setting up furniture for the good news of Jesus to, to be understand and preached within the story of the Bible. So that's great. And that's the first group of people that Paul addresses, Jews and God-fearers. They share the language, the story, and the hopes of the Hebrew scriptures. But now let's take a look at the second group of people. This is that those who are in the marketplace. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with Paul. Some said, what is this, this ignorant show-off trying to say? And others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was talking about the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. Now, if you're anything like me, this is more a common reaction that you would get from friends or family members if you try to share the good news of Jesus like Peter did in Acts 2. If I said, you know, the Holy Spirit has fallen on me and this is all evidence of the arrival of the Messiah as foretold by the prophet Joel, people would just be like completely confused. Now, I, I remember, I think I've shared this story before, but when I was um, young, we brought a friend of mine to church. He'd never been to church before, and we were standing on my parents' patio in the back drinking iced tea. And he turned to me afterwards and said, hey, like, what do Christians believe? Like, what is this all about? I was probably like 12 or 13 years old. And I remember taking a drink of my iced tea and thinking like, this is the moment. This is the moment I've been waiting for. Um, you know, God, whisper a quick prayer to God, and then I'm like, opened my mouth, took a big gulp of air, and then I said, you know, it all starts with Moses. And as soon as it came out of my mouth, I knew that that wasn't the right answer, but I basically stumbled through a bunch of Bible stories, Moses, and then I talked about, you know, the Ten Commandments, and uh, I can't remember what else I talked about, but eventually it led to Jesus. And my friend basically blacked out, you know, 30 seconds in, but I went on for a good five to ten minutes. But Here's the thing, I'm not, I wasn't wrong. It didn't start with Moses, of course, but actually I wasn't wrong. That is the story of the Bible and it does lead to Jesus. But it didn't make a lick of sense to my friend because his, his gear has none of those 
places that we can, I'm going to call them tines. I don't know what that thing is. I should have researched this before. But none of those places that can interlock with that story of the Bible. So that's why it didn't work for me and why it often doesn't work for us is because the gears aren't engaged together. Because our friends and our world doesn't have the biblical stories or the biblical language or the biblical hopes in order to get any traction, in order for those gears to engage together. So here's where we need to talk about our city for a minute. What does our city look like? What is, what are some of the things that are underneath that Paul saw? So I'm just going to give us two. There's probably lots we can talk about, and this is kind of a passion of mine. Uh, So if you want to talk more about it, I'm very happy to do so. But I'll just say two for today. The first is that our city is a post-Christian city. This is very important for us to understand. A post-Christian city. Now, what does that mean? Well, post just means after. Something has coming after. And so we're coming after a society that was based on Christianity. In the past, our society was much more based on some sort of Christianity. uh, And now we are moving slowly in a transition phase to a time beyond that. So in the past, you used to be able to assume that people had that, that wheel of biblical stories and biblical ideas and concepts like sin and God and uh, all those different things. Um, I was watching a Val Kilmer documentary on Amazon Prime called Val. It's really interesting. He's basically filmed his whole life and then he makes this narrative up into his present moment where he can't speak because of cancer. Anyways, at one point, he's taking this walk with his dad. So this is, you know, when video cameras were around. It's not in black and white. It wasn't that long ago. But they're taking this walk through this valley. And his dad says to the video camera, here we are, Moses and his faithful followers, come into the promised land, which is over the river Jordan and beyond the Red Sea. And he just casually says it, like everybody would understand. And I, I just was taken aback by that. Like nobody talks like that today. If you were to take a hike up to, you know, uh, up the chief on Squamish, if you turn to your friend who's not a Christian and you were like, this is just like climbing Mount Moriah or, you know, Moses going up to receive from God the commandments, they would probably be like, what are you talking about? Because the society in the past, at that time with Val Kilmer's dad, everybody knew that story. And Val Kilmer's dad is not a follower of Jesus as far as I know. But he still knew the story. He still had that gear. But today, we don't because it's a post-Christian society. We've moved away from that story and people are no longer steeped in it. We're not taking our cues from the story of God. Tim Keller, uh, author from New York, says, Our society used to also uh, produce a steady stream of people who would feel socially pressured to go to church. Or at least they would think it's a good idea to go to church. There's a social benefit. So that was in the past when we were maybe more of a Christian society. But now, he says, in a post-Christian society, sorry, many people, for them to go to church, it's not only not a social benefit, but it's like unthinkable that they would go to church, he says. And he also says, this is why many churches are not successful as witnessing. It's because we're waiting for people to come into our doors and they're not coming because we're in a post-Christian society. There's no benefit for them to go to church. As I mentioned before, I read a book this summer called Better Than Brunch. And they're saying like church, in order for people to come, would have to be better for brunch, better than brunch, but it's not. So post means that we're gradually transitioning out of this time where the society used to be more Christianized, or we could say churchified or something like that. 
Now, if you're older, you probably remember a time where everybody went to church. They had those gears that fit in with the Bible. And you may, you may wish for that time in the past and you may bemoan that we've moved away. That's fine. Uh, or if you lived in Abbotsford or in the southern states that are kind of more a spotty Christian society, as Tim Keller would say. Um, you know, in Texas, it's pretty normal where my wife's family live. It's, it was pretty normal uh, for people to ask you what church you went to within like two or three mi minutes of meeting them. It's just a, a more engaged in a Christian story society or some sort of Christianity. But our society is not. So that's the first thing we need to know when it comes to being a witnessing community, especially if we want to engage with people, that we live in a post-Christian culture in Vancouver. So people today, don't sit, they don't share the Christian language or the stories or expectations. But the second thing I, I want us to notice about post-Christian culture is that our society is also a reaction against that Christian past. Christianity, they would say, in general, is part of like a dark past that we had. And so we're trying to move beyond it. And this, I find, is one of the most important ways, or one of the most important ways it does play out in our city, is a reaction against what I'm going to call Christendom. Now, what is Christendom? Well, we can define Christendom like this. It's when we confuse the kingdom of God with the kingdoms of this world. And Christianity becomes a colonial power, rather than, as we saw a couple weeks ago, a now-but-not-yet reality where we're cross-eyed, where we're remembering that we're here as suffering people, as people on the margins, not moving to the center, with a hope of Jesus' return. But instead, it, it takes our eyes and focuses them here and says God's kingdom will come through the powers of the world, like violence and politics and coercion. So, for some examples, Constantine, uh, making Christianity the official religion of Rome is an example of Chris Christendom. The Crusades are an example of Christendom when, when people tried to expand the kingdoms of, that they thought were Christian kingdoms by killing Muslims, for example. This is an example of Christendom thinking. The residential schools are an example of Christendom thinking. Western missionaries going to Africa or Asia to try to get, and they get you know, the people there to try to wear Western suits or sing Western songs. This is an example of Christendom thinking. It's basically Christian colonization, if you are familiar with that. Now, here's why I point this out. How does our country and our city feel about colonization? I would say embarrassed and ashamed. We're embarrassed and ashamed that we did that, especially as it relates to the Aboriginal people in Vancouver. So when much of the history of Western or the history of colonization in Western society has involved Christianity. The, the Western colonization and Christian colonization are intertwined. Pe how are people going to feel about Christianity? They're going to feel embarrassed and ashamed. This is something we need to repent from and move on. It's not something we don't need to repent from our lives and move to Christianity. Christianity is something that's part of our dark past that we need to repent from and move on. And I think this is the same for many of us, actually. It's, it's part of the tug and pull and the tension that I think we feel living in this city. That we also, for many of us, bemoan that fact. And we, but we care about Jesus and we don't know how to hold those two things in tension. And we're afraid sometimes to talk about Jesus to be witnesses because of this association uh, with a colonial Christianity. This is the baggage that we pick up, as I talked about a couple weeks ago, when we witness to Jesus in our culture. I think I'm talking about Jesus, the Savior of the world, and this one who provides hope and who has risen from the dead, and, and the one who has suffered in, in my place and, and has invited me and meets me in my suffering. That's who I think I'm talking about. 
And my friends think I'm talking about the Jesus, the colonizer of the world, the one who wants to take power and tell everybody what to do. So the gears, they don't engage. That's the point. And some of you may, may uh, have different opinions about how you feel about um, you know, Christendom. But that's okay. The point of what I'm trying to say here is if, we're, if we have our, our eyes focused on being witnesses, that the gears won't engage if we come to people and we don't recognize that they have this baggage with Christianity. So again, very practically, here's what I found. When I talk about my faith, and this is probably more of a big deal for me because I'm like a, basically like a professional Christian. So if people ever ask, hey, what do you do? And I tell them I'm a pastor. I feel this more than you might. But there's, uh, I, think, I think all of us might, might feel this, that there's a visible change in the conversation. If people are like, hey, what did you do? And then you're like, oh, I went to church. Or you try to talk to people about your faith. There's this visible like change or, or experiential change in the conversation. So when I feel that, when things get awkward because I mentioned that I'm a pastor or uh, as one of my friends, he came into my house, he's looking at my bookshelves and he's like, oh, you have a lot of books about Jesus. I thought this was just like a side thing for you. And I'm like, no, Jesus is, I'm trying to make him more and more the center of my life. He was just like, oh, okay. Like he'd walked into the house of a cult leader. So in those moments, what I try to do is just acknowledge the tension in the room, the elephant in the room, and that there has been a lot of terrible things there have been a lot of terrible things, sorry, done in the name of Christianity. As one woman I was talking to once told me, she said, you know, I don't know if you know this, but Christianity has a bit of a PR problem right now. And so I just acknowledge that. And I invite my friends to say, hey, I know that the conversation kind of got awkward when I said that. And I know Christianity, you know, we have, a, we have there are lots of sad things that have happened in the name of Christianity. So I just ask people, what comes to your mind when I say that? when I say that I follow Jesus or that I'm a pastor or that I went to church this week, you know, what are some of those things that come to mind? And remember Tim Keller's advice from last week, people have really good reasons often for not following Jesus. It's this baggage that they have with our post, our colonial Christian history would be one. And from there, I just try to be honest with them. I first, I listen and then I try to be honest. And I say, hey, this is all, honestly something I struggle with too. You know, my faith is, is this, the core of who I am and the core of my family and how I see the world. But I, I struggle with the tension of things that people have done and continue to do in the name of Jesus. And that's not what I see in the person of Jesus. You know, I, what I see is, is magnetizing for me. But I also understand that there is this other reality that people think and they feel. And so we just talk through that. And I think it creates a space where people can, can at least be open and see that what I'm doing is something different than trying to colonize them with my faith. Brian McLaren, one author, uh, just to give you another example, love him or hate him, he suggests this approach. He says this, I'm sorry we Christians have so often put roadblocks up for spiritual seekers through our narrow-mindedness, our failure to bridge racial and cultural and class barriers, and our lack of acceptance. Please don't blame Jesus for our failure to live up to his teaching and example, and be assured that we'll try to do better with God's help. Please pray for us, okay? And it's just whether you like Brian McLaren, or you like those words, this humble posture of understanding that Jesus came as a servant king to uh, end religion, as Bruxy Cavey said, that we are also in that space too, that we follow a Jesus uh, and we can be humble in front of other people if we recognize and understand this baggage and if we still want to move through that to calling people to follow Jesus.
Okay, let's, let's finish by looking at the rest of the passage to see if there's anything else we can learn from how Paul engages with these people to share the gospel who don't share his spiritual language or story. Verse 22, Paul stood up in the middle of the Areopagus, so he gets invited into this place where uh, he's able to, to uh, share the gospel with people. And he says, people of Athens, I see that you're extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. So what does Paul do? Does he get up there and say, hey, you're all sinners and you're going to hell? No. He assumes, that would be assuming gears that are not there in their language. So he finds something, this is very important, that he can actually agree with them on. Something he can praise in them and in their society. It's finding common ground with folks. He says, you're deeply religious. I see that you truly do care about something greater than yourself. So here's two questions for us today. First, all of us have spent time walking our city. But have you spent time walking the city like Paul with your spiritual eyes open? You know, he's not just wandering around to explore or to find another coffee shop. He's looking at what people worship. He's prayerfully engaging and looking underneath what is going on, what people actually long for and desire, and what he can uh, come alongside them, what he has in common with them first. The second is this, do you, what do your friends and neighbors care about that you can actually agree with? What might be those things as you wander around, as you talk with your friends that you are paying attention to, that the Holy Spirit is kind of like pinging for you? Maybe it's, you know, people of Vancouver, I see that you long for justice, that you care deeply about people who have been marginalized and have been victimized. That's something we can agree on. Or maybe people of Vancouver, I see that you long for unity, but you're deeply polarized. What are the things that we can find that we actually can agree with them on as Christians? Let's continue on. So that's the first, we find common ground. The second, let's continue on reading in verse 23. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hand hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring." Since then we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. So much good stuff here. It could be a whole sermon series on his own, but I just want to point out for the sake of time, the second thing that he does is he brings the story of God into common language, as language that they can understand. He tells the story that we looked at last week. All of the same facets and features are there. And here's a couple things that I think are important for us. Do we know the story of God well enough to describe it using different language? I saw this video series on YouTube called, it comes from Wired, and it's called Five Levels. And what they do is they have this expert come in, and he has to explain the same concept to five levels of people. So a child, a teen, a college student, a grad student, and an expert. He has to explain the same thing to all of them, like quantum physics or you know, uh, dimensions, three dimensions. I mean, it's a very fascinating, and if you want to waste uh, a few hours of your time, I'd encourage you to check it out. One of my favorites is Jacob Collier. He's a musician, and he explains harmony. It starts with a seven-year-old kid and ends with Herbie Hancock. 
But the point is you have to know what you're talking about to be able to engage with different audiences. And it's fascinating to watch how different speakers do this. But it's the same question to us. Do we know the story of God well enough to explain it to people who don't share the language? And you don't have to be an expert on it. It's interesting, if you watch these videos, sometimes the expert who's doing the explaining, they struggle with the young kid the most because they can't find language. So sometimes being an expert is, is a problem. But the point is you have to be aware and familiar enough with the story to be able to find new language to match the context that you're trying to speak into. And so that's, that's the first question for us. And he would, this is what we see Paul do. He uses the language of the audience to explain the story of God. Paul quotes their poets. You know, he's not quoting Moses or Joel, who they don't care about. He quotes someone that they do care about, someone that they do give gravitas to. And then he quotes them. So who are your friends and your family members? Who do your friends and your family members care about? Who are their Joels? Who are their Moseses? How might they lend their voices to the story of God? And here again, you might say, oh man, that'd be so hard. That's so much work. I take it back. You know, I want to I wanna just go back. Just give me a bunch of tracts and a neighborhood map and I'll go knocking door to door. This is too hard. But this is the, the point of, uh, of what I, I want to say here or the heart of what I want to say is that anything that you love will actually take time. You know, I bet you there's things in your life that you could do a five levels explainer video on tomorrow. You could do it tomorrow. You wouldn't need a lot of prep time. I know I could. There's probably several things. Like I could give a, a five levels video on my love and the glory of the Edmonton Oilers or the intricacies of Charles Taylor's work or the craft beer scene in Vancouver. You know, what about you? I don't know what the things are in your life. You could probably give a five levels video on like where to get free stuff in Vancouver, many of you. It's like you gotta go on at 6 a.m. Facebook Marketplace, Monday morning, that's the time. Or what the funniest Instagram accounts are that you should follow. Or what the housing prices are and real estate in Vancouver. You could probably do an explainer video on those tomorrow. Now, how do we get to the place where we're able to do that? Where we're basically experts in those areas? Well, we loved, we found something that we loved and we researched and we spend loads of time learning about that thing. And listen to me, the, the, the God of the universe wants to partner with you and I to share the good news of his work in the world. The greatest story of all time. Is there any story that could be more worthy of us giving some time to learn that we might actually be able to partner with God in taking his story into the lives of the people around us? So. If that's you, again, I'm trying to be very practical here, and you want to learn the story, you're like, yes, I, I feel the need and the desire to witness. And I, and I do recognize that the way that I might be wanting to share the gospel won't reach my friends. The, the, the gears are too far apart. One of the things I would just very practically encourage you to do is go on YouTube and start watching videos from the Bible Project. They explain the story of God in very easy to understand language. Uh, they still use the story of the Bible but in seven-minute videos that help us to understand different themes within the story of God and how they all lead to Jesus. And watching those just kind of again and again and again will start to help us to understand the different storylines of the Bible. Okay, last one. Therefore, verse 30, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. This is the key to telling the story of God for us, is that it's an invitation and a focus. 
and a climax on the person and the work of Jesus. You know, it might start with Moses, it really doesn't, but it did for me at that time in my backyard, but it ends at Jesus or a climax is there. That in the person of Jesus, we see what God is really like, who God truly is. That in the life of Jesus, we see a God who is willing to enter into our world of darkness and to suffer alongside of us and what it truly means for us to be partners with God. In the teaching of Jesus, we see the non-colonial way of God in the world, the true way that God commands us to live. And in the death of Jesus, we see the servant heart of God as he enters into the pit of darkness and dies in our place. And in the resurrection of Jesus, we have this great hope that we're able to hold onto that allows us to live in the now but not yet kingdom. So that it focuses and ends with an invitation to Jesus. Now I'll end with this here from the passage, verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some began to ridicule him. They started to ridicule Paul. And I don't want to lie to you. You can do the best job of being a witness and people will still reject you. You can get the gears super synced up and people will still reject you. They rejected Jesus and they rejected Paul. And so sometimes we still will be rejected. I, I am almost 100% sure that lots of the ways that we get rejected now is just because our, our gears are not mashed up. But even if we can get them close together, just like Paul, we'll get rejected. But when we do, we can also learn to identify with a God who would choose to be rejected for us. That there's actually something sweet and beautiful in that space. It says, but others said we'd like to hear from you again on this. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. I love this last verse. It just gives me so hope. You know, the name Dionysius refers to a Greek god, uh, the god of drunkenness, of sex, of fertility, and basically just like going nuts. Um, he's the party god. And worship of him involved throwing off your restraints and just consuming and kind of like you know, we might say in our world today that you do you, whatever you feel, like let it out. And I don't know if you know anybody like that, but a lot of the people I know, this is basically how they live their life. And I can't really think of a better God to represent Vancouver unless there's a housing God, a God of the housing market, which I'm not familiar with. But this man is named after this God, Dionysius. That's his whole life. That's been the stamp on who he is. And he's a member of this elite group of the, at the Areopagus. But because of Paul's emotion, his willingness not to, to run a, or his willingness to engage emotionally with the story of God, to dig underneath and be devoted to sharing the good news with these people, to his courage of, of even though he might be rejected, still putting himself out there and sharing about Jesus and his translation of the story of God. Because of all of those things, this man Dionysius leaves his life, which has been pointed to excess and the worship of idols who will only hurt and destroy, and he becomes a disciple of the living God, the God that we've been looking at in this story. This God who divides us to a different kind of party and a different kind of kingdom. And that just gives me so much hope for my friends, my family members, and the people that are my neighbors that I know and love, whose lives are pointed in the worship of Dionysius. May we be a church of people who are not passively waiting for people to come here because that season of Christianity is gone or Christendom, but we're actively carrying the story of Jesus into our city in not only word, but deed, that we might see some Dionysiuses come to know Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the hope, the teaching of this 
passage, uh, but also the hope that it brings us, that people may come to know you. So we pray along with you, the people, you would ready people's hearts. Holy Spirit, we ask for your mercy on our friends, on our family members, on our neighbors who don't know you. We ask that you would draw people to know you in the city, not because we want to take over or take power, but because we want to see people liberated and freed from their idols, reset into relationship with you and extending your shalom into the world. So teach us how to be these people who carry your story so that we engage emotionally and we long and teach us how we, how we can engage your story as well with the lives of those uh, who are in our circles of influence. So may we be this kind of church, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.